Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today we will hear from Philip K. Howard, a lawyer and author who has written extensively on government and legal reform. He is also the founder of Common Good, a nonpartisan national coalition dedicated to restoring common sense to America by simplifying government. Today, he will discuss President Biden's proposed infrastructure plan. Let's listen in. Why don't we kick it off, Liz, to Frank Baxter. Frank is uh, from Los Angeles, and maybe you introduce yourself, Frank. We're you know, thrilled you're one of our, our leaders here, and this was um, you know, definitely your, your, your idea. Thank you very much, Nancy. Hi, everybody. I'm I'm, uh, Frank Baxter, a a recovering uh, investment banker, recovering ambassador, still actually a consul representing the country that I visited. Uh, I got along so well with the Republic of Uruguay that they named me their honorary consul to uh, Sacramento, California. So I'm still kind of a kind of a diplomat. I'm a relatively uh, recent member of No Labels. I was was recruited and I see it as a big part of a big solution to a big problem. That, uh, uh, basically, a, a, a non-functional uh, national government. And I think that no labels is a, could be a lot of help to get, have more politicians realize that it's going to be in their best interest, not to mention the best interest of the country, to find ways of getting together and the process of, of supporting those that are enlightened now is, is really important. And I met uh, Philip Howard, um, I was introduced to him and, and read some of his stuff and had him speak before the Pacific Council out here in, in LA and, and he, he blew them away. And I'm, I'm afraid he has maybe too much common sense for a government, but uh, he, I think he has some wonderful aspirations a very common sense aspirations. So. Um, uh, he's one of the America's leading authorities on government simplification, streamlining regulation and legal reform, and works closely with public officials, corporate executives, academics, and judges across the country. He has advised numerous national and statewide elected officials of both parties and is a member of President Trump's strategic and policy forum, along with some of Americans leading CEOs, advising on infrastructure and regularly testifies before Congress. Philip is the author of Try Common Sense, Replacing the Failed Ideologies of Right and Left, the best-selling book, The Death of Common Sense, The Collapse of the Common Good, Life Without Lawyers, and The Rule of Nobody. In 2002, Philip formed Common Good, a nonpartisan national coalition dedicated to restoring common sense to America. His 2015 report, two years, not 10 years, delineated the economic environmental costs of delayed infrastructural approvals and has been endorsed by leaders of both major political parties. He is a prominent civic leader in New York City and has advised national political leaders on legal and regulatory reform for 15 years, including Vice President Gore and numerous governors. He is senior counsel at the law firm Covington and Burling, LLP, He's a graduate of Yale College and the University of Virginia Law and lives in Manhattan with his wife, Alexandra, with whom he shares four children. Thanks, Philip, for being here. We look for, forward to hearing your thoughts. Well, uh, great to see you, Frank, uh, if, if only virtually. I was just driving through Sacramento 
a week ago coming down from Squaw Valley, where my wife Alexandra is from, and uh, and we got lost taking the car back to the Avis store next to the auditorium there, the, you know, the municipal auditorium in Sacramento. What a beautiful neighborhood that is. I mean, That's it's really, right yeah, it's really fantastic. I was ready to, ready to move in. Um, well, I think um, um, uh, I've been asked to talk a little bit about the Biden infrastructure plan. Um, just to be clear, Common Good Views itself is kind of an unpaid ideas factory for no labels. We uh, <laughs> no labels does all the hard work of getting people together and 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 packaging the ideas and and our uh, little not for profit comes up with um, um, structural solutions that are simplified solutions that re empower people to actually make things happen. Um, so uh, I thought I'd talk for maybe ten minutes on the Biden plan and where we are in art. Uh, first of all, it's an incredibly expensive plan. I mean, it, it shows how desperate the public is that when when Biden introduced this plan, which is this huge Christmas tree of goodies, you know, it's like billions of dollars for everybody, it seemed. Um, the New York Times put it, the whole front page, you know, the, the top fold was, was, was the story as if it were VJ Day or something. Um, in, in fact, as Biden administration has made clear, it's just sort of an opening gambit. You know, they're willing to negotiate, you know, almost anything on this. They just wanted to get the ball rolling. And it includes not only what we think of as infrastructure like roads and transit and um, uh, modernizing the power grid is incredibly important for climate change, but also things like housing and in fact, there's more for housing than anything else. Uh, workforce development and such. And while this uh, extensive plan uh, is uh, obviously very, very hard to implement, the Biden administration said almost nothing about how it planned to accomplish all this, whether through permitting or other things. It talked about how it had one sentence, I think, on having smarter permitting without any plan associated with it. And it talked about how it was important that all these projects involve, quote, prevailing wages, which is code for something called the Davis-Bacon law, which basically means that you have to pay top union rates for, for, for any project um, with, with, with federal funding. Um, but in the two weeks since the plan was announced, it's obviously become extremely partisan. Uh, even, even moderate Republicans like Mike Gallagher are deriding it as, you know, calling for a tsunami of cylindrons, referring to some, some um, uh, solar farm that lost all its money that, uh, uh, that the Obama administration funded. Um, and of course, one of the most controversial aspects is that Biden proposed to pay for this all by, by raising the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28%. And also, they've gone out of their way to say that they're not going to have any user charges like a gas tax or vehicle mile driven tax, which almost every economist and environmentalist that I know believes that there should be a user charge. There's no better way to incentivize people to use less carbon fuel than to, um, you know, than to uh, you know, make them pay extra the more they use. Um, so the good news here is that, is that while the, 
the big business groups oppose the uh, raising of the corporate tax. They also very much support at least um, what I call the meat of the infrastructure part of this plan, the, the roads and bridges and the power grid and the broadband and that sort of thing. So the Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, Business Roundtable, uh, No Labels, um, the group in Congress that No Labels supports called the, called the Problem Solvers Caucus sent a letter into the White House saying that they were going to seek bipartisan solutions to, to, to make this happen. But um, as someone's saying just before the call started, uh, there's clearly a logjam developing here. And it's just as partisan as things for the last, you know, however many years, 12 years. So, um, so I think there is an opportunity to, um, to maybe break, to try to break this logjam. And um, in our idea, um, which is not unique to us, is... Is, is not to focus, um, is not to start horse trading, but to sort of launch a new discussion about how to deliver infrastructure in a sensible way. And if we could come up with a mechanism that people trusted to, um, to, to make whatever projects we do actually uh, make them timely and cost-effective, then I think that would actually reduce some of the barriers to um, to, to to agreeing to some of this. We're we're talking to uh, um, I'm talking to some Republican congressmen tomorrow about it, um, and it seems to me that there are three implementation problems that no administration in recent years has addressed and has to address. First of all. There needs to be some credible mechanism for deciding the priorities. Um, you know, fixing up public housing is probably a good idea, but it's probably not as important as uh, building the new rail tunnel under the Hudson River, for example, which the entire Northeast economy depends upon because the, the old one's about to collapse. Um, other countries have uh, infrastructure boards which, um, which actually set priorities and they maintain an ongoing list of national priorities. And like, for example, Australia. And the, the boards don't have to have power to do this. What they have to have though is sort of the moral authority of making these lists so that, so that when somebody comes up with an idea like the bridge to nowhere, which was this $200 million bridge decade or so ago that was going to go from the mainland to some not very populated island in uh, Alaska, you know, that, that get pushed to the bottom of the pile. Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing is permitting. And that's, uh, Frank referred to this paper that I wrote um, two years, not 10 years. Well, one of the things we found is that um, um, a six-year delay compared with other countries, other countries typically permit big project within one to two years. Our country is more like seven to 10 years and sometimes longer. Um, a six year delay more than doubles the effective cost of a project. And in some types of infrastructure more than triples the cost. We also found that lengthy environmental reviews in most cases are dramatically harmful for the environment because they prolong the bottlenecks. Most of these infrastructure projects are fixing some kind of bottleneck or another. 
And when you delay another six years, that's six years of traffic jams and pollution and such. Um, in 2009, um, you know, there was the $800 billion stimulus that, that Obama got Congress to pass. And you will recall that in selling that, a big part of that was supposed to be infrastructure. Well, in the report five years later, um, sort of buried amid the numbers, it turned out that a grand total of 3.6% got spent on transportation infrastructure. And why was that? It's because, as Obama put it, there's no such thing as shovel-ready projects. Um, so in our report, um, we, and I've testified before Congress a bunch of times on this, the answer to this is really relatively straightforward. You give people in the administration the authority to make the decisions needed to enforce deadlines. So the head of the Council on Environmental Quality, for example, should have the presumptive authority to decide what the issues, what issues are important for an environmental review. Instead of having thousands of pages overturning every pebble, you could have a project that says, okay, the big issue here is whether you took the Keystone Pipeline, for example, there'd be three or four big issues. It would be, you know, whether it affects, um, the, encourages the use of carbon, that would be a big issue, whether it somehow interferes with Native American sacred lands, that might be a big issue. But there'd be three or four big issues, even on a project that, that significant. And you could actually do that analysis, picking, you know, you could do it in less than a year, but you could do it in a year and then have a public debate and then decide what to do about it. Instead, these, these pro every time someone doesn't like a project, you get these scoping meetings and Fish and Wildlife and the Corps of Engineers and all these different agencies that are interested show up and somebody doesn't like it and said, you know, I think we should study this a little more. Well, there goes another six or nine months. <laughs> Before you know it, you know, a decade has gone by. Um, so you need to set priority. You need to have authority structures to enforce deadlines. Um, and then you need someone in the White House to have the authority to resolve disagreements because the agencies religiously disagree with each other. Fish and Wildlife apparently hates the Corps of Engineers. <laughs> I don't know why it goes back in history, but somebody has to resolve those disagreements. They can't just let the thing continue to stall. So with clear lines of authority, you could actually enforce deadlines keep environmental reviews to what the regulations have always said they should be, which is 150 pages, 300 in the most complicated projects instead of 3,000 or 5,000 pages. So that's one, so that's the second thing. We need to come up with a, with a, um, a plan to get permitting done in a, in a medium term time period, one to two years. And the third problem with infrastructure is is that the procurement practices are incredibly wasteful. I mean, uh, scandalously wasteful. <laughs> uh, I, use the, I live in New York, so uh, the Second Avenue subway, uh, the new subway line, uh, cost two and a half billion dollars per mile to build. A similar tunnel in Paris, France, a country not known for its efficient labor laws, uh, using a similar machine costs $450 million a mile. That's less than one-fifth as much. 
And why is that? Because the union contracts in New York require two to four times as many people to operate the machine as are needed. It's just feather bedding. Another tunnel in New York, which is creating a, um, a, um, a line from the Long Island Railroad into Grand Central Terminal, uh, an auditor discovered there were 200 people being paid who had never shown up. They were just getting paid. That's a lot of money. So, you know, in, in these big states, there, there are these freebies that the unions have uh, negotiated over the years that are staggeringly wasteful. And, uh, and, and the public won't stand for it. You know, all you have to do to oppose something is tell some stories like I just told. And, 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 uh, and you're going to lose votes and the, and the project's not going to happen. So, so there needs to be a form. So what we've recommended, and you can do different ways of doing this, is the creation of a national infrastructure board, which would not have um, the power to override Congress or the White House or whatever, but would have the responsibility to set priorities, to make recommendations and to oversee permitting and to lean on bureaucrats if they're not, if they're delaying permitting for big projects and that would oversee the public contracts and, um, and basically expose ones that are wasteful and, and do wasteful practices because sunlight really will disinfect these things. The public, public won't stand for them. Um, and it, so we think having a board like this would be incredibly useful to do that. And frankly, even if Congress didn't or the White House didn't create such a board, um, you know, we could all get together <laughs> and create the board. I mean, we could get a coalition of groups like No Labels and Think Tanks and such and actually put together a board uh, with a little bit of staff that would start uh, doing just these projects. It's not that hard to do. Setting priorities, um, commenting on the permitting and, 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 and overseeing the contract. And, um, you know, I think execution is really underrated. You know, nobody trusts government anymore for good reasons. So if you come up with a mechanism that, that, that makes people believe that there's a decent chance that when you build the new power lines, the money won't be wasted, people will be willing to invest in the power lines, or at least more willing. And so we think one of the things that maybe some moderate Republicans could do is trade their support for at least some of this bill in exchange for a mechanism, um, mechanisms like, like I just discussed. Okay, that's what I have to say so far. Lots of, lots of people are weighing in, by the way. Brookings, Ms. Cannon, lots of people today had reports, and we can talk about that too. Great. Thank you very much, Philip. It was, that was very inspiring. I, I, just one quick question for me before I this this board seems to parallel a little bit the the base closing board which was the, but uh, as i remember the base closing board had a lot more authority they kind of got congress off the off the hook and why don't you why do you want this kind of uh, uh, no authority just an advisory board well i think um uh it would be better if it had more authority for example um if it had the authority to nullify contracts, just that authority alone, that were wasteful, that would be huge. 
Um, the way the base, it, it, it is modeled on the base closing commission, which have been incredibly effective because they cut through the, because they cut through the, the political impossibility of, of two members of Congress deciding which of their defense bases have to close down. But, but the base closing commission recommendations still have to be approved by Congress. Okay. So, 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 so I don't think that Congress will ever give up the power of the purse. And, you know, every once in a while, you do need to buy people off. You know, so, you know, the people who are the, the, what I'll call the pro earmark people are, you know, they have a point. I mean, earmarks can go too far, obviously, like the bridge to nowhere, but, um, but they also have political virtues. So, um, so I think, you know, more authority would be better. It'll be easier to get something like this passed if it had less authority. Thank you. Uh, Maxine Clark. Thank you. That was a really interesting uh, discussion that you led, uh, Mr. Howard. I really learned a lot from that. And I have, a, you know, a, a more than one question, but um, we have examples in government, like um, I'm on the board of PBS and there's a, a larger body that's bipartisan CPD that actually gets the money from government and allocates that to the individual stations and everybody has to apply for the money that they need, blah, blah, blah. And it's, it works. I mean, it's a little bit cumbersome, but it's not overly cumbersome. So it sounds like what you're kind of proposing there. And that board changes over time, but it stays a fairly long period of time going over these years of, of decision making that goes on. And I thought that we would get this done actually in uh, the Trump uh, 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 time in office because he made such a big deal about it and because it was Republicans uh, managing it that we would have gotten further along than we did. But clearly it's complicated. And I know that Biden has to understand all these complex things. What could we possibly do to get to him to um, help him see if, if he doesn't see, I just find that hard to believe. Uh, how to get this done and how we as, as a group of people might all volunteer for some of these committees. And, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a perception. I don't think he's, I don't think he's lacking in understanding. Uh, I think he's uh, lacking in political um, support. Uh, my, uh, I don't consider myself a political expert, but based on my experience of hanging around trying to do things the last 25 years. Um, I think that the best way to get Biden's attention is to get a few Republican leaders or even better, some Republican leaders and Democratic leaders together saying, we'll have a lot better chance of building out this plan if we have a coherent um, protocol for making sure the money isn't wasted. I, mean, I, I just think there hasn't been a enough of a focus in any of the reform efforts, including Trump's, I tried to help the Trump people um, um, towards implementation. You know, a lot of what's wrong with the government today is not philosophy, it's the schools don't work and healthcare has too much red tape. And, you know, it's, this is all implementation stuff. And uh, there was a report today from, um, I think it was this Cannon that talked about the difficulty of local communities complying with all the red tape requirements to build the infrastructure. They don't have all the reporting, uh, you know, protocols in place and stuff, and they shouldn't. They should just go do what they did in 
the interstate highway system. You know, there was a 29-page law passed in 1956. Ten years later, 21,000 miles of roads had been built. The last transportation bill was six or 700 pages. And it takes 10 years just to get a permit. <laughs> so, you know, we've, we've changed the way government works. We don't let people act and then hold them accountable. We have all this kind of hamster on a wheel reporting stuff. And so, you know, half the people who want to do these projects don't have, you know, they're, they're just municipal officials who are used to rolling up their sleeves and fixing potholes, not filling out a report to the federal government explaining exactly how they fixed the bottle. Thank you. Gene Bernstein. Hey, Phil, how are you? Gene, oh my God. How are you, buddy? We're everywhere. Well, you know, I followed your work and and I've always thought of hearing you today would be something like, when the bill gets passed, here's the way to try to get things implemented. And from listening to you speak, I'm thinking just the other way around. What you're saying may be a way to get the bill passed. Yeah, yeah. You could could appeal to the Republicans who feel that there's, you know, if it's if it's a billion dollars to do something and you can do it in half the time for half a million and get Biden to go along with that and the Democrats, they might buy into doing that because it's going to cost less and take less time. And the Democrats will buy in because, as you said, if it has an environmental impact, you're you're solving that problem five years, six years sooner. Right. And, and, and just to state the, state the political stuff, really, I mean, the Democrats will not do permitting reform because the environmental groups like um, the, the, the sort of Damocles of being able to veto any project by delaying it and delaying it and delaying it. And, and the Democrats won't solve the procurement problem because they get a lot of support from the unions. Mm-hmm. I understand that. So the only way that the Democrats can solve those problems, the Democrats all want to solve the problems. I mean, Biden understands all these problems. He just can't politically do anything about it. So he needs the plausible deniability of Republicans or some bipartisan groups coming in and saying, you must do this. Then he can say, gosh, I'm sorry, I had to expedite the permitting, or gosh, I'm sorry, I had to change the labor rules. You know, it's a, uh, it's. Um, well, both sides Biden, have to give. Both yeah, sides yeah, have to yeah, give. Yeah, yeah, both sides have to give. And, and Biden needs the Republicans to do it sensibly. That's what I'm saying. He can't do it sensibly. It's not a question of, of he doesn't have the political, um, he's not in a political position to do some of the things I mentioned. So, so he needs Republicans, and the Republicans need him to cut out some of the ornaments of the Christmas tree because it's, you know, it's not very efficient and not really needed and all that. So there's a deal to be made here, but I think it's an implementation. Great. Randy Krakauer. Thank you. Um, if, the, uh, if the high cost and delays of the existing, uh, existing public projects is related to uh, law and existing regulation, um, how would a board, uh, a, a brand new board, be able to impact these things? Isn't, uh, is, isn't that something that's, that an independent board could not impact? Um, that's, that's partially true. Um, uh, first of all, the, the, uh, the, the Trump administration changed some regulations um, 
they changed some regulations in ways I disagreed with, the, you know, permitting regulations, but they also changed the regulations in some ways to, to limit the length of regulations and time in ways that I, that, that I agree with. And, and the Bidens have not undone those regulations. Uh, I think the law could be better to streamline permitting, but, um, but, but part of what goes on in permitting is that uh, there's an instinct um, within officialdom um, not to go out on a limb. You know, when in doubt, don't, because you could get in trouble for saying yes. You never get in trouble for saying no. So the advantage of a national infrastructure board looking over a project is that it could say, this crazy that this project is taking so long, so-and-so is not making the decision. So they can put pressure to implement the regulations, the streamline that have already been passed. So there is a kind of a, um, um, a kind of a moral uh, suasion role uh, that can speed up. I'll give one example. A few years ago, um, we were trying to get the, the permitting done for this $30 billion gateway tunnel under the Hudson, rail tunnel under the Hudson River. And the, the way it was, uh, the way it was uh, working, it was going to take six or seven years just to go through the environmental, you know, it's a big tunnel, all that kind of stuff, you know, environmental review process. So I was talking to the head of the Port Authority, who's very frustrated by all this, a friend of mine. So we did a report just on the cost of delay of that time. We did an economic analysis, like a McKinsey analysis of it. And we also did a cartoon video about how stupid the delay was. And the cartoon video got a huge amount of play. And the Washington Post even wrote a news story about our cartoon video. And the, and the, and the process got done in 20% of the time estimated because of it, because the officials felt the pressure, you know, of the cartoon video and the report to get it done, even though the law didn't change. Now, as it happens, Trump came to office and he wanted to use um, that tunnel as a lever against Chuck Schumer and Cory Booker to try to get them to fund his, his wall on the Mexican border. So, the, so the, the environmental review statement, ready for record of decision, has been sitting on Elaine Chow's desk for three years, just sitting there, because Trump wouldn't approve it. Now it's going to move. But, um, anyway. We have a, from the chat, we have from Harvey Berg, he can't talk. Uh, he says, can you ask why we can build a 35, 35W bridge in 10 months, but can't get projects built? <laughs> well, that's a very good question. I mean, you know, whenever there's a crisis, um, you know, like the earthquake in uh, Los Angeles in 1993, maybe? Uh, um, 94. In 94, they, um, the governor uh, gave a contract to uh, some construction companies and gave them an incentive payment if they got it built before a certain time and they basically ignored all the rules, just like they ignored most of the rules for the permitting of, of the COVID vaccines. You know, they just sped the stuff up, you know, and said, go for it. And it was much more compressed than it usually is. Um, and they had, 
didn't they have those highways rebuilt in months? I mean, it, it wasn't years. It was, it was, it yeah, was the, months. The, it, a contractor made a fortune and everybody was quite okay with it. Yeah, but it's fantastic. So, so, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And there's a war, you know, we had war. We had, you know, all the car companies were making bombers instead of Model A's or whatever, you know. So Americans can do it when there's a willpower, but it is the nature of the current, and this is what, this is what I write books about. And if you really have trouble sleeping, you should buy some of my books. Because then you'll go right to sleep. And, but, but, but the nature of these, uh, of the government we have now is it's, it's like the precautionary principle in spades. You know, everything, there's a requirement that seems reasonable, but then they don't factor in the cost of the person at the school or the hospital proving that they fulfill the requirement. And so everything goes round and round and the red tape kind of multiplies with with more people proving that the people who did the right, <laughs> proving the proof, you know, to get it done. It's like corporate boards now. You have four or five sets of lawyers you know, <laughs> going into the corporate boardrooms. In the old days, one was fine. So it's been a full employment for Covington and Berlin. Thank you very much. But uh, but it's ridiculous. So, uh, so you do need to create a mechanism to prod people, it's like a cattle prod <laughs> into making decisions. Uh, Doug Rutherford. Hi, um, I'm a lawyer, but happily I'm not a, a, a specialist in the Ministry of Procedure Act, but is, is your group or another group got a, a template to amend that at the same time? I would think you mentioned the, the role of environmental groups and so forth that I think use the APA a lot in terms of uh, you know, the, the proper permits weren't, proper, proper hearings weren't held and so forth like that. Is there, is there a, a template that we could start with to help go, you know, push that through as well? Um, uh, it's interesting. I, I gave, at the 50th anniversary of the, Amer of the Administrative Procedure Act, 1996, I gave a keynote address at the, at the forum for the American Bar Association on, on that. And my talk basically said the APA has been a disaster and we need to fundamentally rethink it because it's so procedure based, it doesn't allow things to get done. Um, I think um, um, it would be, uh, uh, my instinct now is to avoid the APA by creating um, goals oriented regulatory structures with accountability mechanisms in them you know, with, uh, rather, than, rather than trying to calibrate the procedures. Because once you get into the procedure calibration business uh, in Washington, it just always takes a life of its own. Uh, you know, it's just, but, but you're right. The APA is a serious problem. And ultimately, it seems to me that officials, including civil servants, need to be responsible and accountable for meeting goals. And that requires overhauling the civil service system. Um, I've written a lot about that um, recently, including a paper arguing that collective bargaining, uh, um, federal collective bargaining violates Article Two of the Constitution. You know, the executive under under a long line of precedent about executive the president's power over over executive branch employees. So. 
we, we could have a longer discussion about this, but yes, there are some system-wide reforms that need to go move away from the idea of procedure to the idea of goals and checks and balances and accountability. Thank you. And a person sitting in Minneapolis, I can tell you that the 35W bridge works really well. Except for <laughs> the, guard, the guardrails on the sides are really short, so that gives me the heebie-jeebies actually to drive across the bridge. Uh, so we're, we're duly warned, Doug. Uh, uh, Pamela Humphrey. Well, thank you so much. This is really an interesting conversation. I, um, you know, what you were saying just makes infinite sense. I, I just, I, we just, we uh, heard uh, Senator Mon mention the other day, and uh, Congress and the way our government is currently working right now is so plugged up. There's zero process. Uh, it's very polarized, and I, I just can't see how we can take these totally pragmatic, makes enormous amount of sense concepts and get them in place to unstick things, you know, so that we can be more effective, we have more accountability, we have more process, we have, I mean, how do we do that in this mess that we're in? Well, I think leadership matters. So I think groups like No Labels are really important because because you have an because you have a road into people, and I think there is a political opportunity here. The American public is fed up. <laughs> I mean, every survey, you know, like two thirds of Americans think there should be a third party. Another poll showed something about the same percentage believes that government needs major structural changes. So, um, and what there hasn't been really. I was talking to Frank Luntz about this the other day, you know, the, spin, the, 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 the guy who comes up with spin miser stuff. Um, but what there isn't is really a kind of a phrase, like the Tea Party or something, that's, that's like the pragmatic party. It's the, or just, you know, can-do party. And uh, I think if we came up with some leaders who said, look, on this, on, on, the, on infrastructure, Let's come up with an agreed upon um, uh, mechanism to avoid the waste and to avoid pork. And, and then once we do that, let's then start building out what we think are our priorities. And I think that would get a lot of attention. I think the political leaders who do that will, will I think that will resonate. And, and you haven't heard a political person saying that yet. Yeah, well, maybe now's the time with this. Um, it'd be interesting because with this new, um, quote, infrastructure bill coming up, uh, it may be time to have that parallel conversation. Right. Uh, Andrew Tish. So, Phil, uh, uh, isn't a significant amount of the inefficiency a function of the fact that uh, the committee structure uh, in Congress uh, makes it so the prerogatives line with the committee chairman and they are loath to give up any of their uh, uh, any of their uh, prerogatives. Yes. <laughs> yes, but, but you know, Washington, Washington, I mean, you know this better than anyone, Andrew. I mean, Washington is uh, 
is a city that's dedicated to the power status quo. It's true with every special interest group. It's true within Congress itself, you know. So, so the only way you break out of that is through public opinion, really. You know, sometimes you can find areas where people have an interest in coming together. But if you get some bipartisan members of Congress who are not committee chairs coming together and saying some of this stuff. So I'm talking to the Progressive Policy Institute right now, which is a centrist Democratic leading think tank. So, so we're talking about doing a forum with some senators from both sides. And these are not senators... Um, who run the committees because they're sitting on top of the power. They don't want to compromise their power, but these are, uh, but they're senators and they have a public presence. And if we can get some senators of both sides to say the kind of stuff that we're talking about today, I think that will get attention and will build pressure on the committee heads. But you're absolutely right for the reasons that no labels has articulated better than anybody. The, the committee structures in Congress, Congress is organized to, you know, to avoid doing the will of the people, as far as I can tell. Saying Congress is organized is an oxymoron. Yeah, yeah, that too. Here's uh, something written from Jeff Melton. The emphasis on unions, blue-collar unions, struck me how much of the waste flows into blue-collar pockets and how much into white-collar pockets. Well, well, actually, that's really interesting because there's – you know, the process, all these delays, that's all white-collar pockets. You know, the environmental consultants and the lawyers and the, um, you know, like the multiple sets of lawyers that go to the board meetings. You know, there's a lot of a lot of the waste in delay. Is, in fact, all of that waste is not blue-collar, it's white-collar. So, uh, so the waste is pretty um, equal opportunity, I would say. But... Um, but there's, you know, but everyone is offended, or almost everyone, by feather bedding. You know, people are offended when somebody does a lousy job and they're not accountable. You know, so people, you know, we're not talking about trying to take money away from uh, blue-collar workers. We're trying to create more blue-collar jobs. I mean, this would be great for, you know, create a couple million jobs. But, um uh, but the money needs to be spent well, not wasted. Martin Schwartz. Uh, hi, Phil. Nice hi, to uh, hear you live. I, I, I have been a supporter of uh, your organization, but my question is not really for you. Uh, I, I'm just wondering if our Problem Solvers Caucus is uh, uh, working on a, a bipartisan proposal that incorporates some of your ideas and uh, uh, you know, who, uh, I don't know if that's for you or for Nancy or Margaret or uh, uh, have you been in touch with the? Um, no, you know, I know I've been in touch with, um, uh, although not in the last week or two, with Tom Swazi. I need to get in touch with Tom and I've not been in touch with Josh Gottheimer or, Leah, uh, or Jimmy Panetta. Um, but I think Nancy, Nancy would probably be a lot closer uh, to this than I am, but I would like to, um, you know, maybe somebody from No Labels and and we could have a conversation together with uh, with, with some of the problem solvers. Yeah, uh, great. Uh, uh, 
you know, I, I, I think everything you're saying is terrific and would love to see it, uh, 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 as someone else mentioned earlier, put in the front of the infrastructure effort, not, not after the fact. Well, it does strike me as kind of an obvious problem solvers kind of solution, mm-hmm. you know, pragmatic, bipartisan, um, and, um, and the problem solvers are, you know, they, they, they're, they're becoming influential. It's a good block. Okay. Are there any other questions? This, not on the infrastructure, uh, Phil, but we, we talked about how Congress isn't legislating. They're, they're, they're media heroes. There's been a lot of talk about pushing, and I guess power structure wouldn't give that up, but more t- uh, towards federalism. We have a number of states that are doing a pretty good job, uh, and maybe uh, uh, certainly things like education, which is pretty much still a state job, but certainly Medicare. You know, uh, David French says, if uh, California wants uh, Medicare for all, let them have it. If Tennessee wants uh, right. a, another let them have it rather than have one size fits all where at least where half the people will always be against most of the policies of the government in power. Well, you know, uh, this is actually a really uh, uh, important point that you're raising. Um, um, I think the the battle lines over quote federalism, you know, devolving more power to the states and such have, have boiled down and off the two, you know, people who fear that George Wallace is going to be in charge and is going to, you know, do something the way George Wallace does. Um, uh, I have a slightly different variation on the idea, which is, uh, you know, there are, there are many areas in which the federal government has oversight, uh, which it's reluctant to give up but where its implementation is through thousand-page rule books and it just makes everything fail, including education, you know, and, and healthcare, yeah, almost every area that involves social services. It's just that they made a hash of it um, by trying to dictate how to do things correctly out of Washington. You know, so you have all these rules written by somebody who's dead. You know, the rule was written in 18, 1983, and now 40 years later, uh, somebody has to follow the rule all day long, whether or not it makes any sense. You know, it's like this this crazy way of governing. It's like central planning. So, so I thought that one could slowly, without changing the laws, but just creating pilot projects, slowly move towards uh, pilot projects where the federal government says it does this in certain environmental areas. These these are the goals we wish to accomplish, and we will let not just states, but municipalities try to achieve them on their, in their own way. They just have to report periodically on how it's worked out and begin to kind of loosen the, the shackles of these thousand page rule books. And, you know, I think that would be enormously popular as well. Well, thank you. Are you in trouble? No, I'm not. not at all. My, my, <laughs> right. my wife wants to. That's the, that's the advantage of being at home. Working at home. <laughs> I've got I got orders from a higher power here. Right, right, exactly. I think. Oh, uh, Sally Dewitt has a question. Yes, um, a question. How would you hand? How would you suggest um, handling abuses on <clears throat> either side of the equation, such as? Someone, if, if there was a central area that was making some of these decisions, like 
for, for example, uh, you know, putting a highway through a black community mm-hmm. or having mm-hmm. a landowner receive a great deal of advantage. Uh, uh, it, do you see ways that that kind of thing could be um, ameliorated? Um, uh, sure. So, so no, nobody I know is calling for a return of Robert Moses <laughs> putting highways through the middle of the cities, uh, through the middle of neighborhoods. Uh, the um, well, first of all, we don't change the National Environmental Policy Act in any of our proposals. So you still have to do a good faith environmental review that's open for a period of time for the public to comment and there still then has to be a political decision. So no project, at least in our conception of this, uh, no important project uh, could go forward unless it did the environmental review, but the environmental review would focus on what's important, like the effects on the neighborhood, not just, you know, again, not, well, to use one example, when they raised the roadway of the Bayonne Bridge using the same foundations, um, they had to do a study of all historic buildings within a two-mile radius, even though the project touched no buildings. <laughs> so you, you, know, you have all these stupid requirements. So, um, so, so we're not trying to do away with public oversight um, and, and, and public review. So that's the main check uh, of the thing like driving through the neighborhood. In terms of giving a contract, to, you know, a friend or, you know, somebody on the take, all the studies on corruption, all of them land in the same place, which is the best way to deter corruption is to give authority to make the contracts to identifiable people. The best way to promote and hide corruption is to have very elaborate processes that go through so many levels of approval that you don't know who made the decision. So um, it's actually clear lines of authority are the best way to prevent corruption because you can look at somebody's bank account. <laughs> you know, the person who makes the decision is, is right there. It doesn't mean that they won't be corrupt, but they, but they can get caught. Bob Kaplan. Thank you. And thank you, Phil, for this uh, excellent idea. Some of us have been working through what could be proposed as a sensible infrastructure bill and this issue on implementation has come up and this is an excellent suggestion. But look, I'm wondering about the scope uh, that you think that this board could take on. You focus a lot on implementation, permitting and contracting, right. uh, which, which is critically important. But what about a front end of this is which projects really should uh, qualify quotas infrastructure or might have higher priority? Yeah. So yeah, I, I, you yeah, see that I, some I, of us would say, yeah, it's not just roads and bridges, you know, the caricature. It does include broadband and cyber protection and smart grids uh, and even semiconductors as a strategic thing. But to be able to say that paid leave and free child care uh, and better health care access, all of which is, you know, could be very valuable, uh, but is that should not really be part of infrastructure and funded out of whatever's there. Could they actually take on that type of uh, a screening right. criteria? Yeah, well, I, it, it was the first, I, I might have slid over it, but that was the first of the three responsibilities, which is to maintain an ongoing list of infrastructure priorities. And it's really important to do that. And that's the first job that they would have to do. Because I agree with you, there are many ways of squandering the money 
And you know, there are many kind of subtle, subtle problems here with the with the with what might be characterized as our infrastructure. You mentioned cybersecurity, really important. I mean, you know, the airwaves are kind of easy to hack, right? So so we need a a kind of a wired system that that as I understand it, that's that's if nothing else, duplicative so that we can if we get interfered, you know, in the sky, we can still keep keep doing business. Uh, so, and we think a, that almost any of the infrastructure, even roads and bridges, in a way should be smart. I mean, there should be technology embedded in them that would allow sure. for autonomous vehicles. Uh, but that just exposes you to more of the cyber risks. So yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, that's right. And so you have user charges. And then there's a whole issue of, of, you know, there's a huge amount of money in Biden's proposal for electrical vehicles, but there's not much money that I could see or not much talk about um, um, the, the technology, the battery technology. And, and so, you know, all the rare earth metals that have been kind of in the processing of rare earth metals that are completely dominated by China. There's a long article in the Economist last week about this, it happens to have been written by my daughter, so I, so I paid attention to it. But um, you know about about rare earth, and you know we've got to. There are aspects of the supply chain that that really implicate you know the 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 health and viability and resilience of our infrastructure. And so I my I think the first job of this National Infrastructure Board would be to would be to deal with these issues and to and to start making a list and you know that, that you could grow uh, over time of, of the things that need to be done and you know and, and, and the ways of doing them. Uh, Ronald Beck. Yeah, thank you. Hey, Philip. Um, quick thing, and this troubles me on almost everything that we try and do in in this sort of an organization. The embedded aspect of both parties at this point means that somebody who comes into Congress, a rookie Congress person, either representative or senator, uh, learns very quickly that despite the best of ideals of working across the aisle and everything else, within the first three to six months, they're taught to stay in shape by the whip. And yeah. unless they want to only deal with Marjorie Taylor Greene on no committees at all, or they, or they <laughs> want no support from the right. committees, uh, from the uh, Republicans or the Democrats in the next campaign, they're in big trouble. How do you keep someone fresh that doesn't have an unassailable base? Um, I think you have to give them a base. I mean, I, mean, I, I mean, there's nothing more depressing than hanging around the halls of Congress and seeing, seeing these members who you can practically feel their powerlessness. You know? <laughs> it's it just really, it's a, I mean, why would anyone want to be there? The, um, they need uh, they need the kind of support that No Labels is giving to the problem solvers. You know they need they need a base, and, and and one of the reasons why I mentioned that you could do a national infrastructure board without it being official, you could actually get you could have a, a rump group of members of Congress saying we're going to lend our support behind this and be involved and help pick the members and. All this kind of stuff because we don't the, the government the Congress is not functioning and so we're going to create this kind of shadow you know these shadow organizations that 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 actually make sense and 
in my experience, it's like civic groups in a city, you know, how influential they can be. Like the commercial club in Chicago or, or the partnership in New York City. Or, or I used to be chair of something called the Municipal Arts Society, which saved Grand Central, that sort of stuff. Um, civic groups can be incredibly influential. So you can have power, not just by saying pretty please to the committee chairs in Congress, but by actually just thinking upon yourself to say, well, you assholes, you're not going to do it. We're going to do it. Bill, thank you very much that you've given us an, an aspiration to marching orders. And I think we're the people that can do it. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.